0: Let's stand for the reading of God's word from James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Hear now the word of the Lord. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in, For whoever keeps the the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word this morning that will convict each of us and, and hopefully uh, move us into a place of greater faithfulness to Jesus Christ and more awe of who he is and what he has done for us, even us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Some of you uh, may have never had a Facebook account, or you may have had one and long since abandoned it. When Facebook was first made available to the general public, I really loved using it. Um, early on, it was a fun and carefree place to connect with high school friends and share pictures of that cat that looks like Wilfred Brimley. But pretty soon, it became a place of political and religious discourse and argument and accusation I don't know if some of you will remember this, but one of the trends or patterns that swept across the platform pretty intensely for a while was this call for Christians not to judge. Do you remember that? It would go something like this. Some cultural moment or another would arise and a Christian would speak truth into that cultural moment. Sometimes that truth would be spoken in love. Many times it would not be. But regardless of the tone of the truth-telling, the many-voiced choir of the culture would immediately respond, Judge not! Christians aren't supposed to judge. And sadly, there were many Christians who would join the chorus, thinking they were obeying Jesus' command in Matthew 7. Many of you are familiar with it. But there's a problem with plucking that command of Jesus out of its context and applying it broadly to every situation. Here's the question. Are Christians supposed to walk through life trying to be blind to all realities around them? To see every man or woman the same? To never make a value judgment of any kind? About anyone or any situation or any policy? Is that what we're called to? Of course not. That is in no way what the scriptures call us to. So why did the cry come from the culture, don't judge? The problem is this. There are three concepts in Scripture that often get thrown into one broad category called judgment. Maybe more. Three that I'm going to address this morning. Those three concepts are judgment, discernment, and partiality. And we're going to see all three contexts at play in the text this morning. They don't mean the same thing. And if we throw them into one category... We won't understand judgment and discernment, and we certainly won't understand partiality for the sin that it is. We will fail to see why there can be no partiality in the church of Jesus Christ. So first, judgment. Okay, this is that background work I was telling you about. What is judgment? Well, at the most basic level, judgment is the act of comparing something to a standard. Does that make sense? Okay, Whether that be a process or a person's actions or a new law written. You see, the act of judgment is to hold one thing up against its appropriate standard. And declare it either in line or out of line with that standard. Okay? So this is important. In Matthew 7, 1, Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now when the voices of Facebook or Instagram or the office water cooler or your own dinner table, when those prophets swell up, they usually stop after these words, judge not. And even the well, we, well-meaning Christians, eager to obey the Lord in whatever he is saying here, we may be tempted to say, well, I shouldn't judge. But that's not where Jesus stopped. He continues in verse 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You see, Jesus is not condemning all judgment and all judgments of all kinds in this one comprehensive statement. We know that can't be what he's saying because there are countless passages of Scripture that command us to judge. Now, that's going to be alarming to some people. And there's a nuance with it. And that's not the main point I'm going to make today. But if you need some, if you need some examples, if you want to go look at this, you can look at John 7.24, 1 Corinthians 5.12, and 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 5, and there are many others. Jesus is not condemning judgment wholesale. He's condemning hypocrisy in judgment. And Jesus' word picture here is stark and hyperbolic, isn't it? Imagine I walk to the back of the sanctuary. I walk in the back of the sanctuary. Just remember, everybody turn around. There's the door. Imagine that you guys are already in here and church is about to start and I walk in and I have two, two by 4 by 12 foot timbers sticking out of my eye sockets. And every time I turn, people are ducking because you know how fast something moves that far out. And I walk right down to the front and I look at Brian and I say, I think you've got something in your eye. All the while oblivious to my own situation, of two by fours in my eye sockets, right? Or perhaps I come out of the hallway here and I walk down to the front and I say to Mary Ann, oh, by the way, my clothes are dripping with red wine. I've been doused in red wine. This white shirt, totally red. This bald head, dripping, it's running down. And as I walk, there are wine footprints behind me. And I walk down to Mary Ann, who's may not in me. There she is. I go, Mary Ann, I think you've got something on your sweater. Do you see how ridiculous that is? It's a hypocrisy of judgment. Jesus is saying, stop pointing out other people's minor flaws without first dealing with your own major flaws. But notice how Jesus ends this little parable. He ends with a call to judgment. Not judgmentalism, not a hammer over the head, but a judgment, a comparison of one thing to its standard. He says, get the log out of your eye and then go help your brother with his speck because it is a speck and it does need to be dealt with. So from the Christian perspective then, this is how we are to judge with acknowledgement and repentance of our own sin but we still hold our brother up to the standard of God's law, lovingly showing him or her their sin with a goal of healing or restoration. And to the outside world, we play some role of salt and light, telling the truth to a culture that it desperately needs, but we do it with humility and a desire toward restoration. And I'm going to come back to how this applies to our passage. So that's the first thing, just, just raw judgment. Comparing one thing to its standard, okay? I'm doing this so that we can contrast it with partiality. That's why we're doing this, okay? Discernment. Discernment's a lot easier. Discernment is the ability to look at a law or standard and look at your situation and make a wise decision. Easier to explain, harder to do. You see how closely related discernment is to judgment, don't you? But it's not the same thing. You see, judgment is easy when the law or the situation are in a one-to-one correlation with one another. The law says do not murder. I'm standing on a cliff next to someone who's wronged me. It's wrong to push them over the edge. Clearly. It's one-to-one. Don't do what you're about to try to do. That's law. That's quick judgment. That's just raw judgment. Standard against situation. But other times, we have to use discernment. You see, I use discernment when I ask the surgeon and not the dentist to remove my ruptured appendix. The law of God does not require that I make that decision directly. And the dentist may be able to pull it off. In fact, based on the record of the doctor. And what I know about the dentist, I might actually make that decision in some cases. But it takes discernment. When you pick up two oranges at the grocery store, everybody's got their method of discernment. You may shake it, you may sniff it, you may squeeze it, you turn it around in your hand looking for some malady, but you discern which orange is best. When you enter your destination into Google Maps, it gives you three options, doesn't it? Two or three. The easy answer is, in our world, pick the quickest. Rarely, that's not what we want to do, is it? But maybe you know something that the algorithm doesn't know about a particular road, some upcoming construction, how safe that part of town is after dark. You use discernment when you select the route. And again, the scriptures call us over and over to use discernment. In the Proverbs, you'll see words of wisdom, the words wisdom and insight and understanding, all connected with discernment, the ability to look at what is true and apply your life situation to it. Discernment is a right judgment in a specific situation. And in verse six of our text this morning, James calls the church to discernment. Look, look at verse six. He says, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? Well, it's not not for me to judge. James is saying, no, it is. It is. Judge the situation that you're in. Discern what's really going on. You see, James is asking these rhetorical questions. He invites his readers to this discernment. He's saying, make a wise judgment about these people and the way they're treating you. Scripture holds this type of judgment up tantamount to human flourishing. Rather than condemn this type of judgment, Scripture commands it and invites us to it. So there are times when we do judge rightly. And there are times when we must use discernment. But there is a kind of judgment that Scripture absolutely forbids. It's the judgment of partiality. It's the sin of partiality. You see, the reason I spent so much time on the biblical concepts of right judgment and particular discernment was so that we could contrast those with partiality. I believe so many of us have a difficult time understanding the difference between them. Partiality is the sinful judging of others by outward appearance only. It's an undue bias. It might be wealth, and in our situation in the text this morning it is. It might be poor and rich, but it might be position in society, which is closely linked. It might be race, color of skin. It could be lots of things. James takes us to what was probably a real situation in this early church to whom he is writing. The issue of wealth. Now for our few remaining minutes, let's turn our attention to James 2 and see what is so heinous about this sin of partiality. I'll be as brief as possible. Look at verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. The faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that is a bare command. James is telling us to hold up the act of partiality to the standard of the law and pass judgment on it. What law, you might ask? I mean, the Ten Commandments don't say anything about it. There's no thou shalt not show partiality in there anywhere. But James apparently disagrees in some way. Look at verse uh, 8. Look at verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. How can he say this? See, what you have to understand is you can't take a narrow view of the Ten Commandments. They don't address every specific situation in which God has commanded us to live. And when asked which is the greatest commandment, Jesus replied in Matthew 22, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In short, James is saying you can't love your neighbor as yourself and show partiality. It's just not possible. And if the second great commandment is to love your neighbor, showing partiality is a heinous sin. Listen to Leviticus 19.15. And this may be what James is thinking of. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Okay, so there is a specific law forbidding showing of partiality, isn't there? Wow, I never knew that. But in the grand scheme of sin, how bad is it really? I mean, how bad is it? It's not like I've murdered anybody. Do you know how many times I've heard that? I mean, I never killed anybody. I'm pretty good. I stole a Snickers when I was eight. I don't know, robbed a bank. Guys, that is, that is a, a frequent place people go to self-justify. I haven't done the bad stuff. James stops us right there. Look at verse 9 again. Look more closely. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point... Has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. Now he is not making the case that all sins are the same or equal in heinousness, but all sins are a transgression of the law of God. In short, there are no respectable sins. No sins we can pat on the head. No sins we can cuddle and tolerate. Partiality is one of the sins that we tend to treat as respectable. Tolerable. One that doesn't really cause any trouble. You know, like gossip or internal lust, or covetousness. That's the way we treat it. And in reality, listen, in reality, partiality belongs in a list with murder and adultery. Is that shocking? The law of God by which man will be rightly judged is a unity. To break it at any point is to break it in whole. Or as James says in verse 10, to fail at one point is to be guilty of all of it. And James's point is clear. To show partiality is to fail to love your neighbor as yourself. Partiality is the heinous sin that we need to drive from our hearts with the whip of the gospel by the power of the Spirit. But how? How are we going to do this? How can we confess it and begin to heal and grow? I think the how is tied to the why. Why is partiality such a heinous sin and why are we so prone to it? Listen, you guys probably have not had to struggle with this text the way I have this week. I hope now you will. You're welcome. What a deceitful sin. It's not very public. Not everyone knows what's in our own hearts. It's not even really all that easy to put your finger on exactly why it's happening. Look, look at James's opening illustration in verse 2. Okay, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place... While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? I want you to imagine this scene at Mountain Fellowship this morning. Okay, look at the back doors again. if If you can turn your head that far. Imagine someone you've always wanted to meet walks in that back door. It could happen a friend of mine from Pensacola walked in the door this two friends of mine totally unexpected someone you don't expect could walk in that back door and it's someone you desperately want to meet maybe it's Elon Musk or Taylor Swift for other generations Andy Griffith <laughs> Napoleon I don't know I don't know how old the oldest person in here is but it could be a sports hero Now, be honest with yourself. Be honest. If at that same time a common person, poorly dressed, uninspiring, walks in at the same time, which will get your attention? Which of those people will you long to get near? When that greatness, as we see it, walks in, We want to be near it. We want to honor it. And more than likely, the poor one among us gets shuffled off to the side, or worse, completely ignored. Why? I pondered that this week. What is it about our hearts that leads us to act this way? It takes some discernment here. James tells us it's a heinous sin and he illustrates it for us, but it takes some discernment to see why it's so heinous and to see why we're so prone to it. And I actually think the answer is the same. We have forgotten who we are and we have forgotten who others are. A few weeks ago, we looked at James 1, 9 through 11. Quickly, this is what it reads, how it reads. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And you know what? Though these verses certainly had application to all of us, and they do, you'll notice James makes these commands to the poor and to the rich specifically, doesn't he? He tells the poor what to do. He tells the rich what to do. Today's passage is directed at all of us as a church. Look at verse 1 again. My brothers. That's all of us. Male, female, young, old. Show no partiality as we what? As we hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see what's going on here? James is saying, dear church, since you have faith in Jesus and see the world as it really is, he's reminding them, see the world as it really is. Don't forget who you are and don't forget who everyone who walks through that door is a sinner in need of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. So in one sense, partiality can be categorized as a a spiritual blindness of some sort or a spiritual amnesia even to forget who we are and who the rich and powerful are, to be attracted to their glory rather than the glory of Jesus Christ. Because if we're here in this service... Worshipping the risen Lord and our attention turns to someone with a lesser glory. How foolish. How foolish. In short, partiality is idolatry. That's why it's so heinous. It's idolatry. And in another sense, I'm not sure which is worse actually. Partiality is a desire to get close so that you can exploit other people. They have something I need, and if I play my cards right, I can extract that something from them. Money, prestige, position, power, a name for myself, I might get all of those from the rich man. You see, in the first case, the poor get ignored because they don't appear to have any glory worth admiring. And in the second case, the poor get ignored because they don't have any, seem to have anything to offer me. There's nothing that shabbily dressed woman has that I need, we think. But look at verse (laughs) 5. Verse 5, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Once again, James calls for discernment here. If there is anything you need that someone else has, it's this, that they are rich in faith. And that by drawing near to them and spending time with them, the perspective the Lord has given them in their poverty might serve to heal you of your partiality towards the rich. Almost paradoxically, the cure for the partial heart is to stop being partial so that you can learn from those you have ignored. That is hard to wrap your mind around. You see, once you confess the sin of partiality, that it has its claws in you, let me say this clearly if you struggle with this sin, it has its claws in you. So deep, like the backward barb of a fish hook. But once you confess it, before the Lord, He begins to restore. Take a step toward those you might normally ignore. Partiality, listen, partiality can rob you of deep friendship. And growth in grace. And let me show you how dangerous partiality can be. Partiality will cause you to miss the Lord Himself. From Isaiah 53, verse 2 He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him, and no beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. So, those who showed partiality in Jesus' day, they missed him. Because he came in humility. And he took on poverty. Let me put it bluntly. Based on Isaiah 53, if first century Jesus and a rich man walked into the back of this sanctuary, we would probably flock to the rich man. But that meek and mild Jesus, that Jesus who took on this humble circumstance, he is no longer in that station. You see... Though his heart is still near to the poor, he is exalted to a place of greatest honor and power. Here's the point. In the church, all are one in Jesus Christ. And as I said a few weeks ago, to ignore the poor is to ignore the realities of the age to come. The age to come is staring us in the face in this body where rich and poor worship one Lord together. The, hear this admonition from Paul in Ephesians 4. I hope this ties it together. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Here it is. There is one body. There is one body, the church, one Spirit. Just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Partiality denies all of that. It blinds us to the fact that we are one in Jesus Christ. It robs us of intimacy with others. It robs us of intimacy with the Lord. What's the encouragement here? The encouragement is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That even this sin, we can bring to Jesus Christ for healing. And so, as I close, what would it look like? What would it look like for many of us today in this church and Mountain Fellowship to say, Lord, I am guilty of the sin of partiality. I want to be healed. I want to be made new in this area. I believe one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one body of Christ, the church. Now, I hope I can say this with no guilt attached. I hope I can say this as a vision for how we might obey this command. Look around the sanctuary one more time. Don't look at the people. Look at the seats. Look again. I didn't count, but as I stood at the back of the sanctuary, I noticed this room is half full. You know who's missing? The poor. And every third Saturday of the month, our church goes and serves those in need. Those who need a roof, those who need a handicap ramp, those whose floors are falling in, those who need clothing. You know what they need more than any of that? Jesus Christ. And more than that, some of them know him, but they haven't been in worship for a long, long time. Either they don't feel comfortable, they don't have something to wear, no one has made them feel welcome. So with no guilt, but only vision and what the glory and the gospel of Jesus Christ might do in this church, let me say, if you can't swing a hammer, go love the Every third Saturday, if you can't run a nail gun, go talk to the people who are being served by acts of service and invite them into this fellowship. Because let me tell you something, we need them. We need the poor to help to be used of the Holy Spirit and the gospel of Jesus Christ to rid us of the sin of partiality. We need them. Many of them are rich in faith where we are poor. So it's a call to us as a church that these seats might be filled with people who are not like us. Who we think have nothing to offer but really do. May Jesus Christ do that in us. Even this month. Let me pray. Father, the the facade of having our lives together, the facade of wealth, the facade of position and power, you have reminded us all are one in Jesus Christ, not by any action of our own, not by anything we've earned, but by the pure grace of God, the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. We sit in this room today needing you to rid us of our partiality that we would not only welcome the poor, but we would learn from the poor. Holy Spirit, we cannot do it. I pray that you would, would blow over this congregation and over this mountain and breathe life into the, to us as you make the body of Christ in this place even more beautiful by bringing more in. And We pray in his name, amen.